Welcome to the International Collective of Female Cinematographers podcast, where every week we'll be talking to a different cinematographer and listening to their stories as they navigate the filmmaking world, sharing secrets and experiences to empower our community. The ICFC is a collective of professional female cinematographers from around the world who provide each other with community support and industry advocacy. We are your hosts, Fabienne and Amelia. And today we're so excited to welcome Kalila Robinson. We will be discussing underwater cinematography, her experience in documentary cinematography, how her Bermudan roots influence her approach to storytelling, and navigating the winding path of a career in cinematography. This is part one of our interview with Kalila Robinson. All right. Welcome, welcome, Kalila, to our uh, podcast. Um, so we are going to start off with the question we start off with always, which is how did you start as a filmmaker and how did you become a DP specifically? Well, um, yeah, so uh, I feel like it's true of everybody. My path was incredibly meandering. And, uh, you know, when I went to university, I definitely had no idea that film was something that could be a career path for anybody who didn't have, you know, a particular last name that like, you know, uh, um, maybe ingratiated them into the industry. So um, I uh, was always a theater kid, though. I did theater in high school. I did theater in college. Um, I at first started in sort of acting space, but I got to college and realized that, you know, I, I enjoyed acting. It was fun. It was a hobby. But I, I saw people who I thought were just phenomenal. I was like, this is not for me. I am not this person, <laughs> you know, and um, and I still loved the space and I love the energy and I love the you know community. So I started working the tech boards. I did, you know, the sound boards and the light boards and would like design uh, the lighting for the shows. And and I worked with a theater troupe in college, um, uh, which was a great group of friends that were still, you know, friends to this day. And I, you know, love that space. And funnily enough, despite the fact that I'd always had camcorders, this is kind of a random story. My mom always bought me like, you know, first and this is VHS camcorders. I'm talking mm-hmm. way, way back, mm-hmm. um, like a little JVC VHS camcorder from like the mid to late 80s into like yes. a little high yeah. uh, camcorder when I was a teenager. So I brought like these, like I brought up one of my high eight camcorders to university. Um, and one of the, the, the director of the, our theater troupe was like, hey, we were both a part of the, the film uh, society on campus. And he was like, they have a festival for student submissions. Why don't we make a movie? And you have a camcorder. Why don't you shoot it? And I was like, sure. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So we made this sort of prequel to Hamlet because, you know, why not? Why not go nice. real big on your first nice. ever endeavor in the film <laughs> space? Um, a black and white prequel to Hamlet um, called Amlet. Ooh. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> back there. But but I, uh, you know, I shot this with with uh, the director, Ed, and loved it, you know, and we basically in between our sophomore and junior year, Ed and I decided to go down to L.A. and do a one year film production course at the New York Film Academy. All right. Um, and we, you know, that was all involved. It was editing, it was directing, it was writing, it was cinematography. It's the first time I actually got my hands on um, a 16 mil and a 35 millimeter camera. And while we were there, you know, I had to do all of it. But like the thing I kept gravitating toward was was the camera and I loved it. And I was just like, this, this, there's something special about this, you know? And, and so, um, you know, again, the next few, the next decade, actually, <laughs> I basically tried a whole bunch of things. I did post, I did development, I've written, I've very, very briefly done sound, um, which was terrible. It was a really Oof. bad idea. <laughs> but, uh, 
But I also, you know, just kept gravitating towards the camera. And, and eventually I was like, no, this is clearly where I'm meant to be. The thing that gives me the most joy and the thing that I'm really both terrified by and in- incredibly excited by is the camera. And so, yeah, you know, it took a minute. <laughs> but I so one of your specialties is underwater cinematography, from what yeah. I read. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how that came into your life and how you decided to special like, because like, we, we haven't talked a little a lot about specialized cinematography in this podcast. Um, so and underwater is just like its own unique thing. You have a lot more certifications. Can you talk a little bit about that process and why you came to it? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I was born and raised on the island of Bermuda. Um, burp, burp, island girl. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I my my dad and my brother were always big scuba divers like you know Mm -hmm. like my my brother got certified when he was 13 he was five years older than me um my dad was always diving throughout childhood he would disappear on saturday mornings with a couple of like uh you know dive buddies and it would come back a few hours later with his whole kit and he would like you know plunge it in the, the the water and like clean it off and stuff like that and so and i i was a water rat from the start you know i i learned this i feel like i like was swimming before i could you know walk effectively <laughs> so i always was in the water love the water uh, i'm obsessed with it so when i turned 12 or 13 i can't remember what the age to first get patty certified i like the first thing i did that summer was get patty certified mm. and uh I spent almost every, uh, you know, summer break during high school working at dive shops in Bermuda once I was able mm-hmm. to at about 15 years old. So I was at that time a rescue, a Patty certified rescue scuba diver. And I was low man on the totem pole with regard to working in the shop. You know, I got all the sort of grunt work. I had to haul all the tanks to the boat and I had to work tail end Charlie, which is, you know, the dive master leads the tour. But the tail end Charlie is a rescue diver who it follows and make sure that any stragglers, um, get picked up and don't get lost in the reef. Um, And so I basically, yeah, from 15 to about 19, I worked at dive shops um, as like my first job. And I honestly thought for a long time, actually, when I went to university, that what what I would study would be marine biology, that I would Mm. end up studying sharks for the rest of my life and just live on boats and live in, you know, uh, uh, sort of what's it called, beach towns. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... When I sort of started taking, you know, what was the sort of uh, at first a hobby sort of focus into film and then became a much more serious and involved uh, love of, you know, the practice of filmmaking, Mm. I always thought it was like a cool idea to utilize this, this, these dual skills that I had, this fondness and affinity and love of the water, along with the, you know, I at that time was already a rescue diver and my um, growing interest and love of, of photography and and cinematography. And so I did an advanced open water photography, underwater photography course Mm. when I was 18, 19 years old. And some of those photos are terrible. (laughs) Some of them were, you know, kind of interesting. And, and again, it was just like one of those things that when I was focused mostly on cinematography many years later, I was like, hey, I have this skill set that I can utilize and that I love. And, and one of the things that I think is really challenging and interesting about, you know, being an underwater um, cinematographer is that there's a very, very technical and important side of your brain that is dedicated to keeping you alive in, an, in a very hostile environment. You know, mm-hmm. you you screw up when you're at depth. You can literally drown. Um, and so you definitely need to always have a portion of your brain that is dedicated to making sure you are doing what you need to do in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the creative side of your brain that very much needs to be focused on 
what your intention is, what you're trying to get, you know, making sure that the composition and the the focus work, especially on those old, uh, those those smaller rigs where you're pulling your own focus. And so one of the things that was advantageous about, about having been um, a diver for so long since I was a, a, a teenager was that, you know, the part of my brain that needed to make sure that I stayed alive was mm-hmm. sort of already ingrained. And it, it was something I didn't have to spend so much time thinking about. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot, I, I do know a few people who have like learned, you know, scuba diving after having been a cinematographer. And one of the most challenging thing is like maintaining your buoyancy, maintaining, you know, mm-hmm. all the of the scuba stuff um, was harder for them while they were also trying to work as operators underwater. Um, whereas for me, some of that stuff is just like, it's so old hat because I've been doing it for 20 plus years. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything like, because I think underwater can seem so daunting and scary yeah. and yeah. like, especially for people who are doing it on a like smaller budget, like what are the big pieces of advice or, or things that you think about, like the ba- main things that you think about when you're thinking about underwater? Um, so yeah. Just- um, I mean, I think the thing is that I think that there's a misconception that you can sort of move quickly. I mean, maybe there's not that misconception. I don't know. But I think that, you know, productions often in the spaces that I get pulled in are like, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll shoot our whole day. And then the last hour of the day, we'll go and we'll jump into the pool and we'll do this. I'm like, you know, you'll get, you know, on average, probably half of the shots that you think you'll get, you know, getting making sure that everybody else beyond just the operator or the deep underwater DP is comfortable in the water is something Mm -hmm. that I think few people really realize because, you know, I mean, a lot of people will say, yeah, totally. I swim. And what they might mean is I swim in a pool where I can always stand up, you know, where if I freak Mm -hmm. out, I can put my feet down and get above the water. But very often what you need to accomplish for a shot underwater is getting everybody settled, maybe even putting weights on an actor so that they can stay in one position for a prolonged period of time, having somebody, whether it's a safety diver or somebody else, supply them with the, uh, you know, air they will need to not die and like having them, you know, basically do what they need to do, but for a prolonged period of time. And very often in the, hey, we're a few weeks out, we're talking to a bunch of actors phase, people will be like, yeah, totally. I'm super comfortable. I swam for high my high school team and then you get them in the pool on the day and it's like I have to put my head underwater and it's like you know these are these are all things that need to be sorted out because yeah as is true of of scuba obviously safety is paramount for Mm -hmm. not just the you know actors but uh, and the operator dp but like for anybody who is getting in that in that space you know again Mm -hmm. you know water is a beautiful medium but it's also an incredibly dangerous one and one that we are Mm -hmm. not equipped to survive in without you know, considered effort or specialty equipment. And so I think that one of the big challenges is, you know, I think, as I think is actually true in all, uh, you know, filmmaking, prep is paramount and being Mm -hmm. well prepared. And, you know, if you can getting into not the pool, but a pool with the actor and like, you know, maybe getting a little GoPro, which has, you know, an underwater housing and trying it out there and and sort of seeing how the moves that you intend to do will work on a smaller scale so that you can uh, figure out if, hey, maybe this isn't the way we need to do it. Maybe we need to like readjust our our plan. You know, I think that when I've been involved in productions that take those extra steps and yeah, it 
it can suck because it can be added cost. It means you need to find space and bring at least a few people together in advance of that shoot. But I think those are the ones that have been the most successful in my experience mm-hmm. because I far too often, sadly, have been on a sh- on shows where we get to everybody's there. We have this pool for this amount of time for, you know, one day. And then something happens where somebody isn't as comfortable as they thought they were or something isn't as well thought through and we end up burning time that we don't have, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever done any like open water ocean? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, actually my first ever my first ever uh underwater cinematography, not photo- actually both my underwater cinematography and photography were um on wrecks in Bermuda. So oh, Bermuda, wow. the wreck That's... capital of the world. There's over 300 um shipwrecks that surround the island um because we have a coral reef that surrounds the whole island and uh I my very first ever documentary uh with underwater work was we were filming shipwrecks and how how you spot shipwrecks and how Bermudian, you know, um uh, fishermen and sailors will go out looking for shipwrecks. And so, yeah. And it was kind of a crazy story because it, one of the first instances where I'm having to worry about not only my buoyancy, but the buoyancy of the underwater housing, which is something mm-hmm. that I hadn't really qu- accounted mm-hmm. for. It was like a small Eichelite housing for a Canon 5D Mark II. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and it was, it was Which great. you still have, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I still, yeah exactly. <laughs> I have a, a different like, like housing, but yeah, you know, it's a great single person. Hey, if you're going to be your operator DP and you need to go get something either out in the ocean or in a lake or in a pool, it's a great unit. And I got, I was being towed behind a boat to do the, you know, the way that you like look for wrecks. And then we Whoa. wanted to have, you know, the, the sort of complimentary shot of somebody else being towed behind the boat with me, you know, about 40 feet under filming as the boat goes over like that uh, and I should have had a spotter but various things happened um that you know re- meant that I had to dive by myself and I'm getting down there I'm getting settled and we don't have any communication at this point so the boat was just gonna like wait a few minutes let me settle and then was gonna go but I had no like ability to communicate with the surface because again we didn't have this spot or whatever so I, I sank down and then like you know I had luckily the the housing on a tether on my arm and I'm trying to find my position right next to the reef oh, so no. that when I end the frame, I can have a bit of the reef like with the, the boat going under. And the, the camera's kind of floating up here because it's positively buoyant. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I see the boat in the distance start coming towards me. And I'm like, oh, no. it was it was a, a pretty traumatic <laughs> experience that first uh, that first go. But it was great. You know, the documentary came out as part of a, a documentary series that I made for the Bermuda government called the, the Bermuda Folklife Documentary Series. Mm. And uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, so I've done open water. I've done reservoirs, lakes, uh, rivers, um, obviously pools. You know, I've done mm-hmm. sort of anything that has a body of water. <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know, even a bowl. You'll get in a bowl. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, I can see that. Yeah. Um, what are some technical aspects or technical considerations you would advise DPs who are looking into doing underwater cinematography as part of a shoot? Like, what should they consider in terms of equipment or like even just like, I know, focus changes, you know, like maybe the, the your lens choice would be affected by the by the constrictions. What would you suggest? Yeah. I mean, one of the the big things on, on smaller shows that have, uh, you know, underwater considerations is that, you know, very often 
depending on what camera body you're using as your principal, you know, I, I try to advise at times like, you know, hey, know that the process of getting the camera physically into the underwater housing, it's not exorbitant, but it, it does take time that you need to really, really be focused on. I mean, not the the, the DP necessarily of the surface stuff, but, you know, uh, somebody who is dedicated to it does need to take, you know, 15 to 30 minutes just to make sure everything is right. Because again, missing an O-ring or, you know, a bad connection means that mm. you have water getting into oh, like no. incredibly expensive equipment, you know, <laughs> and that's not, it's like, it's, it's dangerous for us as, mm. as people and it's dangerous for equipment. And so, you know, being aware of the fact that you are going to, going to lose time of your, in your day in order to do this, unless, you know, sometimes I advise when production can afford it to get a second body. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that, you know, all of the, depending on which housings you're using, whether it's a smaller prosumer housing um, or one of the bigger housings that you'll rent for from like a Hydroflex or something like that, you know, they have their own sort of requirements. Some of them have like a, an exter- external either focus or zoom ring, but not both. Mm-hmm. Some of them have, um, you know, port extenders so you can get stiff different lenses on, but the width and length of your lens is going to be, um, you know, determined to some extent by mm-hmm. the housing or it can be, it's not, it's not always the case, but it can be, you know, I have, like I said, a couple of like the little Ike light um, housings and, you know, often you want to have a zoom <laughs> on the, uh, on the camera. Cause especially if you're doing, trying to do a, a couple of different things, a wider zoom, uh, you might want to, to, to change your focal length while you're under without having to take it up, uh, like, you know, get it dry, remove the port, change the lens, like re rejig it, get the gear back on, put the port back, you know, all of that can take time. So one of the things you, uh, you know, on, on the smaller sort of, um, uh, o- like operator DP housings is you might want to use a zoom, but the, diameter of the zoom along with the gear could mm. be too wide for the port fitting. And so you won't be able to use, you know, mm. very often the 16 to 35s from the cannons or the, um, you know, the wider zooms, which are ideal for uh, like underwater work are, are often really tricky um, to actually use. So you we want to be really, really certain that the lens set that you want and the camera body that you want are are compatible because often you know it's the the, the brochures that come from Nauticam or Gates or um, uh, Eichlite are very thorough but they're also very confusing and mm-hmm. one port will work with it but another port won't so you yeah. know um, again if if there is the ability and of course this is an expense aspect if there is the ability to get a prep day that isn't necessarily just the hey we're picking up the camera and tomorrow mm-hmm. we're shooting but like literally is Hey, we're going to take it out. We're going to put everything together. We're going to throw it in even a smaller, you know, pool of water and test it out just to make Mm -hmm. sure that whatever our circumstances, we can make sure that we are going to going to fit it because yeah, unfortunately, you know, I've definitely gotten, gotten to the point where you get out there on the day and then, Hey, yeah, this, this gear is just not fitting. And I actually can't pull focus by myself underwater. And, you know, a Mm -hmm. lot of the, a lot of the, the mirrorless cameras and the yeah uh, now have like phenomenal autofocus, so you might not have to do that. But you mm-hmm. also have to be very considerate of the the close focus of those lenses and whether or not you need diopters in order mm-hmm. to actually uh, achieve the, the focus that you want. And you know, it's it's there's there's a yeah. lot to consider. And so I mean, I do think one of the things that's awesome is that you know you have 
a <laughs> wide swath of options for underwater mm-hmm. stuff. Literally, you know, any uh, DJI Osmo action cam or, you know, GoPro. It's not it's not the ideal, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, option, but it is a viable option for mm-hmm. getting. If you have like one or two shots that you need underwater, it's a viable option that can be integrated pretty well into mm-hmm. quite a lot of workflows. And if that is like too, too janky, then you can jump <laughs> up to, you know, an Ike Light housing or not a cam housing with a mirrorless camera that you'll match the A7S Mark III to your FS7 or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. So there yeah. are a lot of options and you don't necessarily need to get hamstrung into, hey, we need to go spend many thousands of dollars getting a housing for, you know, uh, an Alexa Mini. You might mm-hmm. be able to find an option that is more um, fitting with your budget and that will do uh, like, you know, the the movement from the, you know, on land photography to underwater photography is forgiving enough that you can potentially use, mm-hmm. you know, different um, uh, yeah. uh, bodies. And- so the uniqueness of the shot already allows exactly. that change. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're going above and underwater. That was my issue with a shot shoot last year. And I was like, oh, I got to get the Alexa Mini. You got to get the Mini. Then you got to get the Mini. Then you got to get. Yep. Yep. So. Need to hire a cinematographer? Well, look no further than the ICFC's member online database. We boast over 300 highly qualified cinematographers for all your filmmaking needs. Visit our site now and find your next superstar collaborator at icfcfilm.com. And how do you how do you approach lighting underwater? I'm like, yeah. that's the other yeah. question. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting because, yeah, obviously light travels differently in water, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, <laughs> there are some really cool, inexpensive options for units that are in water. But obviously, you know, op- the, the big production units that go in water require, you know, specialty uh, GFIs and all sorts of like considerations that are really expensive. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they're great. You know, uh, getting an underwater HMI is a great option for, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work where we were shooting in pools, but to uh, affect the transition from a lake or uh, a river. Mm-hmm. So we often we'll get, uh, what do you call it, Brifflin, you know, like with a mm-hmm. with dark side out and we'll place it around the, the cove of the pool so that we can dark it out. And then we'll try and, you know, hopefully if we're in a, in a space that is an indoor space, we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll kill all the lights so that we can very much sort of control a, a, a single source, whether it's a moonlight or a sunlight sort of um, thing. But we try and get the, the sides of the pool as dark as possible because one of the things that's somewhat frustrating about pool work is that pools are often very lightly colored in like mm-hmm. their paint or they city incredibly shiny <laughs> yeah yeah incredibly shiny um you know uh what do you call it tile material yeah. so mm. it's it's it, it screams pool which is uh frustrating if you were trying to sell it as you know hey this is the bottom of a lake bed also putting mud in a pool terrible idea i've seen it definitely you know because it doesn't everybody's like oh yeah well we'll just put it in it's like okay no. we're hours to let it settle and then every time somebody moves it yeah. kicks up and it then destroys pool filters and you know there's all these things that are like hey yeah i mean you know often if you want to get a little bit of a, a cloudiness to a pool water which is often too clean you know adding a little bit of milk or something like that but again that then goes into the filter that then becomes mm. potentially an lnd bill uh, if uh, the mm. owners you know of said pool come and are like what the hell are you doing yeah. to my <laughs> so um hold on what was the question Lighting. <laughs> oh, lighting. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, 
You know, we yeah. in open water pools, uh, so open air pools rather, we've used shiny boards to redirect sunlight. Yeah. Um, you know, we've used bigger HMIs as like often obviously backlight. Um, there there are some units that are from like digital Sputnik that you can actually mm-hmm. are battery operated that are fully um, submergible that you can yeah. use as like a, you know, a front light, an eye light um, and that sort of thing. So all sorts of stuff, you know, kind of, um, yeah, it, it, it depends on what, what the intention is or whether it's mm-hmm. a night lake that we're we're trying to achieve or whether it's hey we're in a pool and it's a pool and everything around this person is you know the sunlight is sun often works very well if you're you know outdoors for the big consideration for shooting in open water is that um know the visibility of the location that you're at you know whether it's a lake or a a reservoir i got dinged pretty hard once because like we were prepping for this shot and we wanted this crazy cool shot and we had everything there and the reservoir was so silty that the viz was maybe like a foot and a half like literally beyond the lens i couldn't see anything so we basically did the vast majority of the work as surface work because Mm -hmm. almost all of the underwater was impossible to achieve because so yeah viz will change you know and that depends on like summer versus winter too right and like the ocean that it can it can be summer versus winter it can be whether there it's a really windy day or whether there's been a lot of like in um open ocean it can be storm surge will kick up a lot of like you know particulate that'll make it really silty um yeah it really it really means like hey being very aware that like they before if you're an underwater op or an underwater uh, dp going out to a location like you know of a, a, sometimes you can't get access to it, but like of a reservoir or a lake or, or and like just getting in the water you know seeing what yeah. it is it's it's one of the things that people don't really often think about it's like hey we're gonna have all these actors running in we're gonna do this and then we'll have them swim towards us yeah. and it's like oh i literally can't see you know my hand <laughs> in front of my face so what uh, that's out the window oh variables so many variables uh, Hyper specific question, but I just thought of it. It's like, is there a different, like, is there a difference in how it'll affect equipment? Like, if you shoot like in salt water versus fresh mm. water? Um, no, it shouldn't. You know, okay. the vast majority of these housings, uh, you know, are, are like they're rated to certain depths. So depending mm-hmm. on how deep you need to go, I mean, almost all of them are going to be, you know, um, a sort of 100 meters or, or you know, the, the good ones mm-hmm. or 30 meters at the short shallow end for like the GoPros and stuff like that. But 30 meters is 90 feet. Yeah, that's like, it's a lot. You know, that's the lower end of the um, advanced open water certification. So, you know, you're not going to do a wreck dive any deeper than that. And so most of these housings are going to be absolutely fine in pools mostly fine in rivers and, and lakes and and you know uh, depending on what you're trying to achieve in the open ocean that might be where the the depth consideration you might have to mm-hmm. think about but um typically yeah you know you just obviously like all of your gear as a scuba diver you want to make sure if you're in a saline environment that when you come out you are cleaning it off because the salt will deteriorate you know mm-hmm. um, the materials and the and the plastics and so you're always going to be hyper vigilant about making sure you clean everything yeah. after you get out of the pool you know ocean water and chlorine too, right? Yeah, chlorine, exactly. That's cool. Wow, this is our underwater episode. Yeah, underwater episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, moving on from underwater, just like you talk a lot about about, uh, your documentary work. Um, Can you talk about that? Because I know you've done a lot of that as well. Yeah, you know, um, so I was uh, in 2006, I was coming back from London. I lived in London very briefly with uh, some friends and I did a 
a f- small feature film out there, um, which actually got into some festivals. It did some good stuff. Um, and Yay. I did, um, you know, I ran out of money, though. <laughs> One of those things that nobody ever tells you is like, you know, mm. you start your career off doing all the, like, deferred pay work. Mm. Which oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. I, I went out there after uni um, and I had, you know, I had a little bit of money uh, saved up. I'd worked, obviously, out in the summers and stuff like that. And I lived with my cousin and a, and a really good friend of ours. And I I did all of this sort of low budget deferred work uh, pay. But at the time, the British pound was two to one against the dollar and Oof. all savings were in American. Oof. And so I got, I mean, I ran out of money so quick, you know, yeah. you're 22, you go to the pub with friends and you go wherever, yeah. you know. Um, so I basically got to the point where I'd done I'd done a couple of uh, like you know uh, low budget films and uh, had run out of cash and came back to the the states and I was predominantly living in LA at the time but I obviously still you know born and raised in Bermuda I go back regularly and I went back and a good friend of mine was working for the Department of Community and Cultural Affairs in Bermuda mm-hmm. and he was really keen to make a documentary about a group called the Gumbays in Bermuda which is uh, a dancing um, organization it's actually a few like that are traditional to the island they're absolutely beautiful but like you know their history is if you're not a gumbay or in a gumbay family it's 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 a little obscure a lot of Bermudians mm-hmm. don't know the origins and so he was keen to jump into making this story and like just reached out to me and asked me if um i could you know give him any insight or any help into you know maybe a, like making this and what i should think uh, what he should think about because i obviously made a couple of small films and stuff like that and so you know he and i basically made a plan and went to like together and we i didn't shoot this one. I shot some of specialty stuff. You know, we got a, a stage and did a silhouetted versions of them dancing in slow-mo mm-hmm. and I did some mm-hmm. of that, but we'd hired a local, a couple of local um, uh, shooters in Bermuda to, to film the, the the project and in the way that uh, I do, I kind of uh, overextended myself and was like, hey, I know some editors in LA, we can we can figure out getting this put together and, and you know, Adrian and I um, got connected. I mean, we worked with a, an editor that's a good friend of mine over here and we put it together and that went back to Bermuda. It showed at the film festival. It got a, like a lot of really positive response because one of the things that's really sad about Bermuda is like we are this itty bitty island wedged between, you know, the United States on one side and Great Britain on the other. Mm. And so much of our history becomes like, you know, ignored in favor of mm. focusing on British history mm-hmm. or American history or British culture and American culture. And mm-hmm. Bermuda has its own really, really like, you know, vibrant and beautiful culture. And so one of the things that this Gumby doc did is it awoke a Bermudian audience interest in more stories about Bermudian mm. subjects and more That's stories about cool. Bermudian characters. And so he was out working for this this organization, the the Department of Community and Cultural Affairs. And one of the other, you know, officers at that at that time was like, hey, we have these literary and uh, festival focused, you know, examinations of Bermuda culture, but we haven't documented it. Mm -hmm. And as is true, sadly, of a lot of, um, you know, smaller nation uh, realities, a lot of the Bermudian folk traditions are actually disappearing, you know, Mm -hmm. in this modern age where you can buy everything on Amazon. People aren't going out and buying banana dolls from Ronnie Shamo, you know, they're 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 not they're not one not going out and and purchasing them and they're two they're not actually learning these histories and so we recognize that at the time a lot of the tradition bearers on the island were you know uh octogenarians and uh, not Mm -hmm. quite centenarians but like they were they were getting older and these cultural traditions were getting lost and and so kim and i were like hey maybe documentary uh documentary Mm -hmm. (laughs) is is the better way to 
you know, catalog this stuff because mm-hmm. it means that not only does whoever sees it in the audience today have access to it, but we can actually share it with the community going forward. And so I at that time was like, hey, if we're going to do this, I really want to shoot these um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, help to pr- put them together. And so I had at the time a Canon 5D Mark II. Nice, nice. <laughs> the the documentarians, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I came back to the island, and um, you know, every every summer we would shoot three or four, uh, you know, subjects or subject matters rather. It was often you know between one and four subjects per um, subject matter, and we we would film them in Bermuda, and then I would go back to the states, and I would either you know I edited some myself, I brought in some other editors here, and then we put them together, and then we they would take them back and screen them in Bermuda, and uh, they, it was a really popular series, so mm. we kept doing that for. Oh gosh, the better part of you know seven eight years, and in wow. the, the the time that time span, we made nineteen feature docs, and you wow. know it follows. Yeah, it follows. <laughs> yeah, of fishermen, uh, Bermuda traditional farming practices, Bermuda medicinal healing, uh, plant medicinal healing. Um, so it it covers wow. a broad swath of Bermudian wow. culture and Bermudian history. And you know, my grandfather was a uh, an historian in Bermuda. He wrote a book called Heritage, which was focused on the island's history. And and it felt to me kind of like I was. Uh, following in his footsteps and maintaining the tradition and and, mm-hmm. and helping to uh, communicate Bermudian culture to the next generation and help to preserve it, hopefully, because, you know, we are we are our own strong and mighty and individual, uh, you know, country. And and our history is rich, uh, even though, mm-hmm. you know, the, the U.S. history right there and the British history on the other side are, are sort of all consuming in a lot of people's mm-hmm. eyes. So, yeah. Is that available anywhere? Yeah, actually. Available? Uh, it used to be that we had them only on DVD and on the Bermuda, like Bermuda uh, national television. Um, they actually streamed for years uh, in the Caribbean on some sort of cable channel in the Caribbean. I don't know why, where, but I used to get messages from people in Barbados being like, hey, I saw your doc about medicinal plants. It's great. <laughs> um, but as of a couple, like I think right around the pandemic, they decided to release them all. So they're on the the Department of Community and Cultural Affairs website on uh, YouTube site rather. So cool. you can have access to, there's the Bermuda um, Folklife uh, documentary series, the Bermuda Heritage documentary series and the Bermuda Culture documentary series. Oh, wow. Mm. wow. Wow. And you've continued yeah. on with documentaries to this day as well? Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it doc is, is, is such a beautiful way to examine, you know, mm. culture, character, you know, different things. I, I came back to the States, obviously all, all during this time, I wasn't mm-hmm. exclusively in Bermuda making these docs. I was, yeah. you know, shooting in Bermuda, coming back and working in other uh, fields, but I've done sports docs and music mm. docs and all sorts of things. So doc is always, uh, I, I have kind of inadvertently always gravitated to, to a doc heavy history, um, you know, and uh, it's been great because yeah, you learn a lot, a lot, a lot um, doing those things. Yeah. Wow. Music docs. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Which oh, ones of well, those yeah. did you do? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea, Kalila. Tell me. <laughs> How many of those have I done? Oh, gosh. I don't know. It's so funny, too, because like everybody who knows me is like, I mean, it's such a weird thing that I, I fall into music docs because I basically. Music docs, you know, for sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I listen to this room like eight 
uh, albums that I listened to in high school. I'm like really bad at like, you know, popular and or modern music because I mean, like I just, I, I, I don't really, you know, um, find it very easily. When I find something new that I like, I obviously love it, yes. but at the same time, I, I'm not a music aficionado. Mm. And yet uh, I have fallen into a couple of like really awesome music docs in the past. And, and I keep getting, um, you know, others as a result of knowing, you know, people in the music doc community. So, so yeah, I've done, I've done done a lot of music talk and I'm like, yeah, how, how did I get this? I don't know. B. Cindy is a woman in Latina-owned boutique camera rental house based in Los Angeles. They are passionate about the nuanced design that goes into visual storytelling and as such are committed to supporting filmmakers tell their stories with the best tools available. Plus, for busy cinematographer or camera crew parents, they also offer childcare services during prep. So when you're looking for camera rentals for your next project, check out their extensive repertoire of optics and cameras at www.bcine.com or write to rentals at bcine.com for general inquiry. What is it about documentary storytelling in particular that's been really attractive to you? <laughs> um, well, one of the things I think is is has been awesome about, especially with the Bermudian um, folk life docs, is that, you know, you walk into this thing that you think you know. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, OK. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've seen Ronnie Shimo's like uh, for, for Bermudians. I've seen Ronnie Shimo's banana dolls at like fairs and stuff like that. <laughs> but there is, you know, these characters, these people who are phenomenal practitioners of their crafts, who have their own really interesting and unique stories. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's kind of fun about Doc that's different, obviously, from narrative is you walk in. It's kind of like you walk in without the script and you start mm-hmm. filming the movie and the script starts to come together as mm-hmm. you're going, which is a really thrilling and kind of terrifying aspect for a cinematographer because yeah. obviously, you know, as a narrative cinematographers, I feel like we like to be as prepared as possible. And we have these ideas that are happening way before we ever get on set. And in documentary, it feels like to some extent it happens in reverse. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this final product that you're going to examine to some extent, but you don't know the 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 bits and pieces the nuance uh, the, mm-hmm. the the you don't know the full story yet you know you have an idea of what the story you're intending to tell is but I mean I think that one of the things that was always interesting for me is you know we these almost all of these docs they were primarily uh, single cam so it was me mm-hmm. and uh, we usually had a UPM sound person and we had Kim who was the director who she knows these um, individuals intimately like she's like worked mm-hmm. with them before she's had other uh, what do you call it um, cultural practices and, and events with them. So she knows uh, to a much greater degree what their story is and why, how they got into the thing that they're doing and all that. But like often I would be walking in like maybe only knowing their name <laughs> and what like the subject of our doc was, you know, okay, beekeeping, great. Okay, farming, <laughs> great. You know, um, and, uh, you farming. know, uh, yeah. farming. Broad subject. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I would walk into these spaces kind of blind. And I also, you know, I was in charge of um, basically all of the, the visual language of the projects. So, you know, we're sitting there and we're doing these interviews and then we will go out into the field and we'll walk around, you know, banana, um, you know, well, what's it called? Farms uh, or, you know, farm farms or, or whatever it is. And it's my job to make sure we have everything. You know, Kim's mm-hmm. trusting me to just find the visual story. And, you know, for me, it was like really interesting because I also uh, on these projects, I the first few I edited myself and often I would get back to L.A. So I'm way I'm like 
4,000 miles away from where I can get pickup shots if I mm. need them. And I'm like, huh, okay. So in this uh, where I have this great thing, I don't have any way to get to this next thing. And so mm. it really attenuated my attention into being very aware while you're in the moment. You know, obviously mm. you want to follow what's happening and you don't want to like direct, especially, you know, older Bermudians are great and they have like this rich storytelling tradition. So they're, you know, you don't want to interrupt something because mm. you might miss something that's really, really vital. Um, so it's about being very keenly aware of what is being said to you while you're finding, uh, you know, the the sort of visual story with your camera, mm. but also being aware of the fact that, hey, there's something that they said that we're almost certainly going to use because it was really interesting. And mm. I am not, I am, I don't have it yet. I need to mm. find it. So, I mean, being my own editor was challenging and one of the best yeah. experiences yeah. as a photographer I've ever had because, yeah. you know, realizing that having those abilities to not only have the the shot in the moment, but figuring out what you need in order to mm-hmm. make the story mm-hmm. as a whole work, you know, that was, that was, yeah, an invaluable lesson yeah. that yeah. I've taken into my narrative work, you know, as well, because there are definitely moments and times when you're, you've got like the greatest plan, but you, you need to think editorially as well mm-hmm. and be like, hey, but does this, work well as a way to get from here to here doing mm-hmm. something else is like some other shot uh necessary in order to tell this story and mm-hmm. i think documentary work is so fascinating because yeah your your brain is always there you're like 100 percent there there's like mm-hmm. hey i am so close to this actor or you know this this musician and i've got this great thing and i think this will absolutely make it into the thing but but where are we in space mm-hmm. i know because i've walked through the stadium and i've seen everything but have i got what i need and the ed- what the editor needs in order mm-hmm. to communicate to the audience where this moment in time exists. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the things that's important for narrative uh, filmmakers as well as documentary filmmakers is you have to be aware of what you know and what the audience knows are two different things. You know, mm-hmm. you've read that mm-hmm. script a hundred times. You have talked about this ad nauseum. But from an audience perspective, you are suddenly here and you're like next moment there and they don't know how you got there. And so mm-hmm. as a documentary like filmmaker, I definitely think that I'm always aware of like, hey, this is a great moment. This is, I think, something could very much be in it. But I realize that I have nothing that like is the connective mm-hmm. tissue. And so I need to go. And now once I have this moment, once it's done, I need to go and get yeah. that connective tissue. I need to be able to allow the editor to communicate where yeah. this is in the in the context of the story. So which might be hard to learn if you don't have that feedback or if you didn't yeah. edit it yourself. You know, like exactly. I know I said this on a previous episode that I think one of the most invaluable things that I have in my past is my editing experience for right? cinematography. And I yeah. encourage everyone to even if they're not interested Absolutely. in editing, just to edit yeah. their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Learn even, so much from it. Exactly. Yeah. Even even if it means just like, you know, having some of the footage from, um, you know, a shoot day and yeah. not, not, you know, necessarily editing as the editor, but just going in like, hey, we talked about this scene and hey, uh, well, let me see how it would actually does it work together, you know, because yeah. yeah. Sometimes one of the most gratifying things about, you know, my career as I've as I've uh, grown is that more and more often the thing that uh, we we planned in our heads that mm. maybe only existed mm. in our heads worked out when we actually shot it and put it together. Yes. It. But yes. like, it's still not always, you know, yeah. and, you know, I think that that's one of the greatest parts about, you know, um film school and like uh, the the sort of multiple decade process that uh, I path I've been on is that more and more often I can I can visualize it I can think it and and actually execute it but but yeah sometimes sometimes your your best laid plan you know doesn't actually work out when you get yeah. everything together and you put it together it's like huh 
I thought this would work and it doesn't. You know? yeah. And sometimes <laughs> it wasn't the right answer in the first place. Yeah. And you, if you allow yourself that room to find it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. So speaking of film schools, you went yeah. to films, several film schools. Several. Was, are you happy with that trajectory? Are you, you know, what did, what advice mm. would you give or, or thoughts yeah. on that process? Absolutely. You know, I uh, I went to three films. Well, I mean, if you account my university, which didn't have a film production course, mm-hmm. it had a film theory course. I did an, a minor in film studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, technically, then I went to four film schools. Um, <laughs> the most know. educated cinematographer. Yeah, the most educated one. <laughs> yeah, no, I did uh, the New York Film Academy's one-year film production course, um, mm-hmm. which, again, was not cinematography focused. It was literally everything. It was, we edited it on Steinbeck's. I think we were one of the last yes. class actors. Oh, wow. physically edited on film, oh. which was a chore and very yeah. illuminating. Um, and then we went to the the like a uh, non-linear editor, which was Final Cut Three. God, I'm meeting myself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. I, I remember. That was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did that. And then that was in between my university, like second uh, sophomore year and junior year of university. And then I went back to university and did you know, the end of university. Went to England for a bit, made a couple of films for absolutely no money, <laughs> came back to the States, got a job in development, spent a year doing development and was like, this is not for me. I need to mm-hmm. have more activity. Mm-hmm. So I went to Africa very briefly for a, a production and that was its own experience. <laughs> and then, you know, I started doing these docs for the Bermuda government and was like, you know, in L.A. making web series and all sorts of uh, stuff on the side when I was, you know, and, and working as a freelancer, um, making a lot of YouTube, not like you know, uh, how to videos for yeah. random you know, mm-hmm. those years, those lean years of, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. below minimum wage nonsense. But mm-hmm. um, so uh, uh, what was the question? Uh, film school. Oh, school. Film school. <laughs> film school. So, yeah. so then I eventually, you know, got to the point where I had a lot of friends who were writers and they were starting to move up. They, a lot of them had, uh, you know, recently attended film schools themselves and were, you know, starting to jump into staff writing positions and stuff like that. And there was a part of my brain that was like, I know that the thing for me is cinematography and I love these people and we've been doing web series and little videos for YouTube for years, but they are getting to the point where they are, you know, moving beyond what you can really sort of achieve very easily mm-hmm. without, you know, some sort of leg up that the, the leg up that film school will offer. And so mm-hmm. I, I recognize that, you know, I wanted to continue to grow with them and mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to be in the position that if they said to a production company, hey, I want Kalila to be my DP, that the production company couldn't easily be like, oh, no, she doesn't have any experience. Yeah. We, we're, we're 100 percent not going to allow that to happen. And so I basically recognize that, you know, as as awesome as as my little 5D Mark II was and as awesome as my sort of knowledge of, you know, a, you know, Subaru Forester's worth of, you know, gear from what Nickel was, I needed, I needed the next, I needed to jump to the next level. And while I absolutely believe that that is something that people can accomplish by working and by mm-hmm. getting on sets yeah. and by, you know, getting the yeah. right connections, I absolutely think that's true. I also recognize that for, for what I wanted to do, I wanted to move but at a faster pace and, and basically mm-hmm. have the time to focus my energy exclusively on um, honing my craft and and getting better as a cinematographer. So mm-hmm. I knew that film school was for me. Um, and so the first one that I uh, went to was like uh, the Global, Global Cinematography Institute, mm-hmm. which was phenomenal. Um, it was a really, really great experiment experience. Vilmos uh, was actually one of the teachers and he like, you know, sat there and talked to us about, uh, you know, his films and all of this like phenomenal work that he had done. And wow. there are some absolutely 
stellar uh, DPs that were actively working, that were teaching us um, as we went. Um, but one of the things that I, for me, like thought I was missing was I really wanted that interaction between the, you know, director, the editor, the Whoa. like the, the the writer, the production designer. And so I I decided to apply for um, uh, AFI and mm-hmm. I got in and I, I knew that, hey, two years where you get to dedicate your entire energy towards making movies and you get to just jump into the the intensity of, of uh, the conservatory focused uh, schooling was exactly what I thought I needed in order mm-hmm. to, you know, get my my own craft to the next level. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I did. I did AFI and absolutely loved it. I thought it was one of the most beneficial things um, in my career. I think it definitely helped me get that leg up, not only um, from the standpoint of people that I knew from all the disciplines that were mm-hmm. there, but also my own confidence about what yeah. I was capable yeah. of. And, you know, as as we just talked about, my ability to practice, hey, this is how I see it. This mm-hmm. is how I think I achieve it. And then put it into practice mm-hmm. and see if that works. And like, you know, from a lighting perspective, from a camera movement perspective, you know, I was able to really test whether or not the way that we would talk about something and, and imagine it could actually be achieved in the way that I would plan it. And mm-hmm. and so that confidence in that, uh, you know, uh, ability to just, in a in a, in a in an environment where you're not going to lose your job if you you yeah. know have a day that runs yeah. over or you that you don't make you know i love i love working by doing i love learning by doing but mm-hmm. like the 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 danger in like the world outside of school is that yeah you know yeah. you fuck up one day sorry you screw up <laughs> one day and you're just you know, you're out, you're, you're, and then that producer yeah. and that director and like maybe all the people involved aren't going to consider you as somebody yeah. to reach yeah. out to it. And it's really unfortunate because I think the failures in my career have been some of the greatest learning um, opportunities. Yeah. And I think I am a better DP because I have failed a bunch, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, but the, 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 in the working it world, you know, the ability and the time and the money that is, mm-hmm. you know, lost when you have an idea that doesn't work is sometimes yeah. insurmountable. And so I think film school was great for me because I got that, I got that chance and I got to build up that confidence. Mm-hmm. And I, I met a network of just phenomenal people whose ideas were sometimes so different from mine. It was so mm-hmm. interesting to see that in practice. And, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I think that film school for me anyway, it was like one of the most valuable um, aspects. Of, of my career path and my career journey. And and uh, I recognize that it's not for everyone. I don't think mm-hmm. everybody needs it. I absolutely think that sort of yeah. going out there and just getting on, on shows can be a freaking great right. way for yeah. a lot of people to like jump into the industry. But for me, I, I kind of needed that yeah. that that boost that, that film school gave me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think one of the things a lot of people forget when they're in film school is that it's a really safe environment to fail in. Yeah. And like you're you and like I keep telling students because I teach sometimes I'm like, you know, this is a time to take risks. This is a time yeah. to try something yeah. and be creative. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You learn from it, you know, like <laughs> and sometimes I feel that people who are in film school forget that. Oh, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, and the anxiety and the pressure to yeah. just always be the best version. Yeah. Of, yeah. Wait a second. You don't know what you're doing. That's why yeah. you're in school. Exactly. <laughs> why are you here otherwise? Yeah. <laughs> if you knew what you were doing, you would already be out there doing it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. fun. yeah so, no, I agree that, you know, Ooh. having that opportunity, you know, to just, yeah, try things, screw up, mm-hmm. learn from it. 
Move on. Yep, correct. I also think the one thing that was great about film school is like we work in a collaborative medium Mm -hmm. and like being able to communicate with, you know, not just directors, not just producers, but literally with everybody that you come into into contact with is one of the most valuable skills that any any filmmaker can have unless you're mm-hmm. going to be that sort of sole like you know shooter producer like yeah. you know, that, that, that one man band one woman band <laughs> that one woman <laughs> band off there you know um, yeah. if, if you are in any show that has more than one person you're going to have to learn to communicate and one mm-hmm. of the things that was really great about film school for me anyway was that like you know i'm gregarious i'm talkative i chat but like there are different ways that uh, communicating to different people is effective, you know, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes the way that you'll speak to your operator or to your gaffer mm-hmm. absolutely will not work talking to, you know, uh, the director or to the mm-hmm. PD or mm-hmm. to, you know, the editorial team. So learning how to encounter different, you know, personality types, different uh, individuals, learning how to communicate, learning how to sort of find a way to uh, communicate visual ideas verbally with, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a group of people is is an invaluable skill and it's one that only i think can be learned by practice you know you need to bump into a director who does not think visually and does not understand you when you're saying hey so we'll we'll do like a you know low afternoon like you know hard light and we'll do this and then they're just like blank yeah <laughs> yeah you know you need you need to know okay some people i might need to bring up references in order to like describe what i'm doing some people mm-hmm. i can just say wouldn't it be great if there's like a low hard light over there and they'll be like yeah totally <laughs> yeah. and and you need to you know that skill of finding a way to communicate with your collaborators is is invaluable and, and film school was great for that for me because I, I definitely bumped into some some types that were very different from you know who I had had known making web series and um you know the, the the documentaries and 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 finding the way to like actually be able to talk to them effectively was uh great you know yeah love what we've been focusing on in this interview what about the angle we've been taking have you found it illuminating help us power our community by going to icscfilm.com slash friends and making a donation today we're an all-volunteer group and your support will help us keep our website rolling our events lit and our podcast honey okay maybe the last one's free but we do need your help for everything else and don't forget to subscribe Speaking of film school, um, so you met uh, Matt Gentile at AFI, who was the director of your most recent feature that is now on Hulu. Can you talk about that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, it's so funny. So Matt, uh, Matthew, Matthew Gentile was uh, a year above me. Uh, Your year, I believe. Yeah, my year. Yep. (laughs) My year. Uh, And uh, he... And I first met, I mean, he was a roommate of one of the writers from Fogs and my year. Um, and, you know, I think we had gone to a party over at like, you know, that 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 uh, group of people had a pool in their mm-hmm. apartment complex. So so I bumped into him a couple of times in like, you know, a social sort of setting. But mm-hmm. like we were in different classes, we were in dis- different disciplines. But we basically were crossing on the AFI stairs, which anybody who went to AFI is very aware of. <laughs> yeah. Up, yeah. I think I was going up to the library. And I think he was coming down to the <laughs> building. Um, and again, I'm a chatty, talkative person. So we just started talking you know i i think i can't remember what the first convo was but it was literally on that staircase and i <laughs> asked him a question i think i had been teamed with a, a a team of people for my first cycle and i was i was 
it was a challenging relationship dynamic. And I, mm-hmm. I was like, hey, you're a director. I'm just curious. What was your experience with like your cycle teams? Did you have any that were, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more, you know, friction with mm-hmm. there a little bit more friction? And he gave me a piece of advice, which I thought was invaluable, which was that, you know, one of his best uh, cycle, you know, collaborations was with a team that he didn't get like he didn't gel completely with you know he said he had had three which was one that was really easy uh, like where everybody was like completely in line completely agreed with everything he had one where everybody was completely at loggerheads they just didn't agree on anything and then he had one where you know it was like hey they weren't completely on the same page and it took a lot of effort to like sort of find find the way through and he said that the most valuable one for him had been the one where there wasn't complete agreement you know the one with complete agreement apparently you know, it, it wasn't as satisfying an experience as the one that had a little mm-hmm. bit of a little bit of friction. And so I was like, that's a really interesting thing, because, yeah, you know, it's mm-hmm. sometimes fun and easy to work with friends. But sometimes like the most interesting, I think, um, creative like dynamics can be when you don't see eye to eye. You know, yeah. my first my first team was the loggerheads version, where we just <laughs> and like we we never came together. And sadly, you know, the, the I think the the project suffered because of a lot of personality quirks. And I am definitely you know willing to acknowledge that I I contributed uh, quite a bit to that. Um, and then I had another cycle similarly that had like a little bit of friction, where it was a little hard and it was a little, but like that was the most successful of um of of my cycle career experience. And mm. and I, I just really appreciated that, you know, I asked a question and he was really willing to give me a really sort of detailed uh, answer to it. And so we, for the next, you know, for the entirety of that year, we would literally pass each other on the stairway and we would have like these, you know, two to five minute chats. Mm. And uh, and so, you know, um, we, we got on really well. Uh, and we, when I went to my second year and was doing a thesis and uh, it was quite late in the year and everybody else had pretty much teamed up, uh, I reached out to Matthew and was like, hey, I know that you've graduated, but, you know, there's a possibility that if I might let you return to, to, to come direct this thesis. And he was super keen. And we sat down with the writer and we just like, you know, did iterations of the script. And uh, we then, you know, if I uh, greenlit us for, for a thesis and we went together and and we went and made this, this film um, called Lawman that I'm really proud of. It's a story that like I had sort of brought to AFI with the intention of like, I really want to make this as the thesis. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I got to was kind of awesome. And uh, one of the things that was great was that Matthew and I got this opportunity to like properly work together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Matthew is brilliant and he's so much fun and we do not agree on things (laughs) like very often. (laughs) We have really dissimilar tastes in movies. There are things that he loves that I think are stupid (laughs) and there are things that I love that he's like, this movie is bad. And I'm like, (laughs) and one of the great uh, dynamics, I think, in the, the, the great aspects of our relationship is like we respect the hell out of each other mm. and don't agree all the time you know and he'll sometimes be like what about this and I'm like that doesn't make any sense and sometimes <laughs> I'm like well what about this and he's like that's ah, a little boring you know <laughs> like we yeah. we I think um one of the, the great parts of our relationship is that we get this opportunity to you know be completely open with each other you know there's no mm-hmm. bad ideas even when I say something is stupid or he says something is stupid you know we we recognize that we are better filmmakers each of us together mm. Are as individuals because, like, mm-hmm. sometimes you know, yeah, you need somebody who has like a, a, a different 
point of view as to what mm-hmm. like could work or what might work. And and I often find that, you know, not to get all philosophical, but the Hegelian mm-hmm. uh, dialectic thinking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the combination of sor- sort of semi-disparate ideas at times is uh, a really valuable way to get to something new that is better than either. So mm-hmm. that we, we made Lawman together and then we made a bunch of like random small things like uh, commercials and, and uh, little, little videos for for various things over the years and and he had this this script that he was really keen to tell and he had been writing it and we we did video storyboards we did like mm-hmm. theater like shot lists for tr- numerous drafts like you know at every stage of the the uh the the process it was just like this is cool okay how would we tell this and well before we ever got a production company and we got money to actually do it we would you know go to Griffith Park with a couple of actors and we would randomly film scenes on you know like a little DSLR camera mm-hmm. And then we put them together and we did animatics and we did visual storyboards. And like, yeah, we, we were very keen to tell the story. And, and uh, we got the opportunity um, uh, in the midst of the craziness of the pandemic. And, you know, it was uh, his first feature. It was technically like my second or third. I can't remember. Mm. Um, but like it was it's it's fantastic. I, I, I love I love Matthew. Matthew's awesome. Um, and I hope I hope we're making movies, you know, for the rest of our careers. So, yeah. Was there any like interesting things in this production or like just sp- like specific challenges or anything about this specific project that you'd want to talk about? I'm curious. Sure. sure. I mean, Literally, this project was made in the height of the pandemic, pre-vaccines in Utah. (laughs) And we were, you know, in the phase of like, hey, if we get shut down with COVID, we're just going to disappear. This film, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't have the uh, the money Mm -hmm. to go down for 14 days and keep people in Utah and then come back, you know. So we shot right before Christmas. And uh, similarly, you know, we had some really big set pieces. We had some big, you know, we have a SWAT team that invades a house. We have uh, like the murder scene that happens in front of an actual actually still open movie theater in Utah. I don't know how that worked, but uh, yeah, we we had these things. And one of the things that was great, I think, about, you know, Matthew and I for for years, literal years, have been, you know, doing versions of this project. We'd done a proof of concept a couple of years before, which mm-hmm. I think helped him to um, get the attention with the, the, the production company. Um, and then he'd written numerous drafts of the scripts that we had shot listed, that we had, you know, done video storyboards for. So we... We walked in, I mean, even before we ever had um, a first AD, Matthew and I had broken down the script and decided right. how many days we would like, how many days we mm. would need, and how many days they would likely give us. And so we got to the point where <laughs> when we actually are sitting there on the day, you know, one of the producers was like, okay, we're going to do it in like, you know, 20 days and blah, blah, you know, whatever the sort of scenario was. And we were like, um, we're, we're probably going to need a little bit more. And, you know, we, we knew it so well because we spent so much time doing versions of it that, you know, given the constraints of COVID, you know, uh, a low budget indie project, uh, given that we were being much more ambitious than our budget probably should have, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, allowed for, we we were very keen of, uh, on knowing that, hey, we should need more resources or we need more time for certain things. And we'll find a way to squish other things into, into you know, uh, tighter boxes, if you will. 
Um, but yeah, that was like the the thing that I, I I was really pleased to get the opportunity with. I mean, you don't always get that. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you're hired on literally at the very start of prep and you're kind of getting your feet under yeah. you as you were, you know, prepping, which is, you know, obviously there's there's ways to do that. And the, the more experience you have, the, the easier that is. But I think one of the great things about I mean, this is really the first, you know, properly big budgeted, um, big budgeted by our standpoint of, uh, project that Matthew and I had the opportunity opportunity to do. And I think that we were able to achieve quite a lot because we were so, mm. so well prepared for mm. it, you know. So we did walk into to, to things. And and when when we got friction about how much time we could allocate to stuff, there were things where we were like, OK, fine, you know, you can win that argument because that's not the important one. Mm. But when you say that we only have half a day to do this, like, you know, invasion of a SWAT team into a house, we know that that's either not realistic or something that we, we're going to have to push back against. And mm-hmm. so so that was like, you know, really good. And we were we were always a united front because we 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 knew what we needed we knew what we wanted mm-hmm. and uh yeah we were able to achieve i think quite a lot given given a very limited sort of amount of resources and i'm really i'm really proud of the project you know have we That's heard the name so- of it yet it's called american murderer oh, and yeah. it's available on hulu in the u.s <laughs> yay. yay i'm so excited i can't wait to watch it i've heard it's beautiful yes thank I've, you yeah. <laughs> from a mutual friend of ours <laughs> yes <laughs> that might be here <laughs> We're going to take a little break, and we'll be back in a few days with part two. Thank you so much for listening today. Please follow us on Instagram at the ICFC. You can also reach us by writing to icfcpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to tune in for our part two of our interview with Kalila Robinson. This episode was produced by Emilia Mendieta Cordova, Fabian Hausepian, Akina Vandeveldi, Senda Bonet, and Barbie Lung. 